You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Just before the action began in earnest, on July 2nd, I was with General Meade near General Sickles, whose troops seemed very badly disposed on that part of the field. At my suggestion, General Meade sent me to the left to examine the condition of affairs, and I continued on till I reached Little Round Top. There were no troops on it, and it was being used as a signal station. I saw that this was the key of the whole position, and that our troops in the woods in front of it could not see the ground in front of them, so that the enemy would come upon them before they would be aware of it. The long line of woods on the west side of the Emmitsburg Road furnished an excellent place for the enemy to form out of sight. So I requested the captain of a battery just in front of Little Round Top to fire a shot into these woods. He did so, and as the shot went whistling through the air, the sound of it reached the enemy's troops and caused everyone to look in the direction of it. This motion revealed to me the glistening of gun barrels and bayonets of the enemy's line of battle, already formed and far outflanking the position of any of our troops, so that the line of his advance from his right to Little Round Top was unopposed. I had been particular in telling this, as the discovery was intensely thrilling to my feelings, and almost appalling. Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, Chief Engineer, Army of the Potomac. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 349 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and Tracy won't be with us for this show, so you're stuck with me flying solo with this episode, um, and the next actually. I was away recently on a trip to Utah and northern Arizona, a bit of a photography trip, Uh, Working at our local hospital here in Boulder, I'd received the vaccine pretty early on and felt okay taking a road trip to put my new camera that I'd got for Christmas uh, through its paces at some fantastic spots out there. And now with Tracy and her mom both having received the vaccine also, they are out of town visiting Tracy's sister and her family who they haven't seen in well over a year. So definitely for us, one of the benefits of the vaccine is being able to feel 
okay traveling again. Uh, still taking the normal precautions, though, of course, that we've been living with for the past year. Uh, so anyway, that's just a bit of explanation as to why we were off the air the last few weeks and why Tracy won't be with us for a couple of shows. But if you're ready, you and I will soldier on, putting out a new episode today and picking back up with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, Longstreet's attack on the Federal left had finally kicked off on the afternoon of the second day of the battle, July 2nd, 1863, and after a bitter struggle, Devil's Den had fallen to the attacking Confederates. Then, by the end of the last show, our attention had turned to Little Round Top. And let's just go ahead and say that for the vast majority of people, when you say Little Round Top, what do they think of? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine, right? Okay, well, there's no getting around that Michael Shera's 1975 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Killer Angels, and Gettysburg the 1993 movie based on the book, have turned Colonel Chamberlain and the 20th Maine into larger-than-life figures. Uh, Those literary and cinematic interpretations of the battle with regard to the attack and defense of Little Round Top have placed Chamberlain and his main men squarely in the spotlight at center stage in the drama that played out on that rocky hill on the southern end of the battlefield on July 2nd. However, however, there is much more to the story of what happened on Little Round Top that day. And really, it starts with Dan Sickles. Oh, Dan Sickles. Uh, Leaving that key piece of terrain at the left end of the Union line completely undefended so that when Governor K. Warren, the Army of the Potomac's chief engineer, arrived on the hilltop, the only federal soldiers he found there were some signalmen who had been there wigwagging their signal flags all morning, keeping an, an, an eye on things from that magnificent vantage point. And if you visited the battlefield and stood there, near to Warren's statue, which stands there on the northwest slope of Little Round Top, you know just what a magnificent vantage point it is today, and would have been back then, on July 2nd. Uh, At any rate, as our story moves from Sickles leaving Little Round Top undefended, to Warren arriving there and appreciating the spot's significance and discovering that the Confederate battle line formed up over across the way, overlapped the Union left flank, and in fact had a, had a clear path to Little Round Top. Well, then the next act in the drama would be Warren quickly sending off messengers to summon reinforcements who could race to the spot to secure the vital hill there at the far left end of Meade's famous fishhook line of defense at Gettysburg. Uh, Warren, as you heard from that quote at the top of the episode, 
considered Little Round Top the key to the whole federal position, appreciating that if the Confederates seized the hill, the potential, at least, would be there for them to roll up the Union line on Cemetery Ridge from south to north. Uh, additionally, the Federal's line of communication and supply running down the Baltimore Pike would also be in jeopardy. Uh, so the next major character who appears in our drama is Strong Vincent. Vincent, uh, 26 years old in July of 1863, was from a neck of the woods in northwest Pennsylvania where quite a few of my family live. He was born in Waterford, near Erie, and graduated from Harvard in 1859. He studied law, passed the bar exam within a year, and opened practice in Erie. When the Civil War started, he began his military service as a first lieutenant and adjutant of a three-month regiment. When that unit's term of service ended, he re-enlisted and would eventually become colonel of the 83rd Pennsylvania, which was fated to become a hard-fighting regiment that suffered extremely high casualties over the course of the war. Uh, in any case, at Gaines Mill during the Seven Days Battles, uh, Vincent was absent sick, but when the colonel and major of the 83rd were killed in action there, uh, Vincent rose to regimental command. Then he was given command of his brigade in Barnes Division in the 5th Corps in May, after the Battle of Chancellorsville, so Gettysburg would be Strong Vincent's first major action in brigade command. Well, as things would turn out, it would also be his last, but he certainly made the most of the moment when the opportunity presented itself there that day at Gettysburg. As we related at the end of the last episode, Barnes' division was in the lead as Sykes' 5th Corps was rushing to the southern end of the battlefield in response to Meade's urgent call for support for Sickles' imperiled 3rd Corps. And Barnes would later claim that he responded to Warren's request for help by ordering his lead brigade under Vincent to Little Round Top. Uh, a much more widely accepted version of the event, though, has Vincent himself taking the responsibility of leading his men there. Noticing a 5th Corps staff officer gallop up, Vincent, so it would seem, called out, What are your orders? The staffer told him that he was sent to find General Barnes. Did Vincent know where he was? Not answering, Vincent again asked as to the man's orders. General Sykes told me to direct General Barnes to send one of his brigades to occupy that hill yonder, he said, pointing to Little Round Top. Vincent answered, I will take the responsibility of taking my brigade there. And with that strong Vincent and his four regiments, some 1,300 men from Pennsylvania, Maine, Michigan, and New York set off for a date with destiny, arriving on Little Round Top with about 15 minutes to spare before advancing Confederate soldiers emerged from the trees below.
Barnes, who should have been with the head of his divisional column, wasn't there. So after Strong, Vincent took it upon himself to hustle his brigade to Little Round Top, he turned to Colonel James Rice, commanding the brigade's lead regiment, the 44th New York, and Vincent told him, Colonel, bring the brigade as quickly as possible onto that hill. Double quick where the ground will permit. And Vincent sent his staff officers galloping down the column to give the word to the colonels of his other three regiments, and then, taking only his brigade color bearer, Private Oliver Norton, he himself rushed ahead toward Little Round Top to select a position for his troops. And the fighting was still raging there along Hawks Ridge and at Devil's Den when Vincent and his color bearer arrived atop Little Round Top. And as the Colonel and Private Norton sat their horses there, surveying the landscape and the battle raging down below and about half a mile away, a shell exploded near them, coming from Confederate artillery over on the Emmitsburg Road. Well, realizing the rebel gunners across the way were most likely zeroing in on the brigade flag, a white pennant bordered in red and bearing a blue Maltese cross, Vincent yelled, Down with that flag, Norton! Damn it, go behind the rocks with it! Well, Norton was only too happy to quickly obey, and Vincent followed him, gave him the reins of his horse, and then continued the reconnaissance on foot, so that when the brigade arrived, it could go straight into place. Well, Strong Vincent may not have had any formal military training or pre-war experience, but he was a good soldier and a gifted officer, and at the moment of his greatest martial challenge, he acted with cool intelligence. By the time Rice brought the head of the brigade column to Little Round Top, Round Top, Vincent had decided to post his four regiments along the lower edge of the Rocky Hills' southern and western slopes, thus occupying the military crest, which is lower than the topographical crest. As we've spoken about previously on the podcast, it's usually more advantageous, tactically speaking, for a military unit to occupy that lower line rather than the actual summit of a hill, and that was true here at Little Round Top. At any rate, here, Rice's 44th New York took its place first, with the other regiments snapping into place successively to its left the 83rd Pennsylvania, the 20th Maine, and then the 16th Michigan. The skirmishers began to ease forward from each regiment, filtering ahead of the main line. Well, after surveying his deployment, Vincent, who would never get to explain his reasons for doing so, decided to shift the 16th Michigan from his extreme left to his extreme right. So now, from right to left, the brigade line was the 16th Michigan, 44th New York, 83rd Pennsylvania, and then the 20th Maine. So Chamberlain and his Mainers were now holding the left flank of the brigade and the new left flank of the Army of the Potomac. 
Now Strong Vincent moved along his line, giving each regimental commander a a hasty tactical briefing and offering encouragement. And when he reached Colonel Chamberlain, Vincent told him that, in Chamberlain's words, quote, This was the extreme left of our general line, and that a desperate attack was expected in order to turn that position. And he concluded by telling me I was to hold that ground at all hazards. Like Vincent's other regiments, the 20th Maine held a line there on Little Round Top that was hardly parade ground straight, but instead wiggled back and forth, so as to, as Chamberlain later reported, quote, best secure the advantage of the rough, rocky, and stragglingly wooded ground, end quote. Not recorded in Chamberlain's official report was his decision to send his two brothers, Tom and John, both serving under him in the regiment, to opposite ends of the 20th line. And Chamberlain admitted he feared that if they fought side by side, a single enemy shell, quote, might make it hard for mother. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Just minutes after Vincent's Federals took up positions across the western and southern slopes of Little Round Top, Confederate soldiers emerged from the trees below. These rebel soldiers were from the 4th Alabama of Law's Brigade, and the 4th and 5th Texas of Robertson's Brigade. You see, in an attempt to maintain alignment with Law's left, 
the 4th and 5th Texas had become separated from the rest of their brigade. And so as the 3rd Arkansas and 1st Texas struck Ward's Federals along Houck's Ridge, the 4th and 5th Texas continued moving eastward with the 4th Alabama on their right. All three of these regiments then angled left, sweeping across the tree-covered northwestern shoulder of Big Round Top, while at the same time, the remaining regiments of Law's Brigade, the 15th and 47th Alabama, both under the command of Colonel William Oates, became even further separated, moving up the steep slopes of Big Round Top all the way to its summit. Now, it's, it's all but impossible for us today to imagine just how thoroughly exhausted Laws Alabamans were that hot Thursday afternoon. They had already marched nearly 30 miles that day and had had not a drop of water after they drained what they'd started off with in their canteens. Now, reaching the crest of Big Round Top, the men of the 15th and 47th Alabama were particularly winded. The climb was by no means an easy one, and to make their lives even more difficult, the Alabamans were under constant fire from skirmishers of the 2nd U.S. sharpshooters. According to Oates, the rebel soldiers were, quote, catching to the rocks and bushes and crawling over the boulders, in the face of the fire of the enemy, who kept retreating, taking shelter, and firing down on us from the rocks and crags which covered the side of the mountain, thicker than gravestones in a city cemetery. End quote. Oates added that upon reaching the summit of Big Round Top, quote, some of my men fainted from heat, exhaustion, and thirst. Oates halted his men on the summit, hoping to give them time to catch their breath, but the halt proved to be all too short, because one of Law's staff officers soon arrived with orders for Oates to once again get moving. He was to sweep down the northern slope of Big Round Top and join the 4th Alabama and 4th and 5th Texas in their attacks on Little Round Top. And so, Oates' tired and thirsty Alabamans were once again in motion, making their way down the hillside and toward the saddle of land that separated the two round tops. As Oates' 15th and 47th Alabama neared that saddle, they could hear the sounds of battle raging to their left front. After chasing back the blue-coated skirmishers sent forward from the regiments of Vincent's brigade, and after traversing difficult ground covered by rocks that varied, said one rebel, quote, from the size of a wash pot to that of a wagon bed, end quote, the men of the 4th Alabama and 4th and 5th Texas emerged from the trees on the northwestern slopes of Big Round Top and immediately came under fire from the Federals positioned above on the slopes of Little Round Top. A soldier in the 83rd Pennsylvania said, quote, In an instant, a sheet of smoke and flame burst from our whole line, which made the enemy reel and stagger, 
and fall back in confusion. The Confederates did their best to hold out, taking cover behind the granite boulders that littered the landscape and returning the Federals' fire. As a Texan leader wrote, quote, Every tree, rock, and stump that gave us protection from the rain of many balls that were poured down upon us from the crest above was soon appropriated. But the heavy federal fire that lashed them proved too much, and the Confederate troops fell back. Officers reformed them, and they lurched forward a second time, and for a second time they were stopped and then driven back. Those first two Confederate attacks on Little Round Top struck the center and right of Vincent's line, and both times the rebels were repulsed. But more Confederate troops soon arrived on the scene in the form of the 15th and 47th Alabama, led by Colonel Oates. Oates' instructions were to locate, quote, the left of the Union line, to turn it, and do all the damage I could, end quote. Well, it wasn't long before he and his men found the left of the Union line. As the weary soldiers of these two Alabama regiments approached the saddle between the two round tops, coming into the right of the 4th Alabama, they were greeted, quote, by the most destructive fire, end quote, that Oates had ever seen. He would also later remember how his line, quote, wavered like a man trying to walk against a strong wind. Much of the fire that welcomed Oates and his Alabamans to the fight came from the left of the 83rd Pennsylvania and from Chamberlain's 20th Maine, there on, on Vincent's left. Private Elisha Cohn of the 20th remembered that the regiment's line, quote, burst into flames and the crash of musketry became constant. End quote. Well, recovering from that initial blast, Oates' men lost no time in returning the Federal fire, and the fight for Little Round Top now became general all along the length of Vincent's brigade line. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Twilight at Little Round Top, July 2nd, 1863, The Tide Turns at Gettysburg, by Glenn W. LaFantasy. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the podcast website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page. We had quite a few of you asking about the show being off the air for several weeks, and we did post updates on Twitter and Facebook. So if you keep up with us there, you knew what was up. But if you don't, then you didn't. We also had quite a few of you contacting us after this week's... um, Tragic mass shooting in Boulder. Since you've heard me mention that I work in Boulder, and some of you know Tracy's mom lives in Boulder. But, um, yeah, it was a rough week here. 
the hospital where I work was put on alert Monday afternoon and personnel and resources were immobilized. But then, as it turned out, all the victims died at the scene. And the only person brought in for care was the shooter. That was a real punch in the gut. And the rest of the week was just tough, I think, for most of us. You know, I was actually working for UC Health at the time of the Aurora theater shootings. And it just seems like here in Colorado, uh, these shootings, even going back to Columbine, are just... Um, it's just horrible, obviously. Anyway, none of that has anything to do with the Civil War, of course, which is why we're all here. So as we wrap up this show, we... um. Just want to say thank you to everyone for your concern, whether it was for us being off the air or for our welfare. Uh, we appreciate you checking in on us. We also appreciate the folks who have signed up to support the podcast over on Patreon and also those of you who have given donations recently. And since it's been a while, uh, since we've had a new episode. Uh, there are so many of you that it would take a while to go through the list of all of you. So rather than doing that, please just know how grateful we are for your financial support, whether on a monthly basis over at Patreon or through those one-time donations. All right, next time we'll look at the fight for Little Round Top in some detail, but for now... Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.